Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a special reading with poet Jane Hirschfield, followed by a conversation with Commonweal's Eric Karpolis, as they discuss Language as a Lathe, a conversation on poetry and prose. And now I get to introduce Jane Hirschfield and Eric Karpolis. I'll say a word about Eric first. He is a a member of the board of directors of Commonweal. He uh, has been um, uh, leading a number of our conversations over the years, including a beautiful one with W.S. Merwin, the Poet Laureate, and and many others. Uh, He is a very gifted uh, painter and uh, uh, the author of a beautiful book on paintings in Proust, and um, a most gifted uh, friend and colleague. So I'm so glad that he's here to speak with Jane Hirschfield. Jane Hirschfield um, is the author of eight books of poetry, including The Beauty, Come, Come Thief, After, and Given Sugar, Given Salt. She's edited and co-translated four books presenting the work of poets from the past. She's done two major collections of essays, Nine Gates Entering the the Mind of Poetry, and the new one, Ten Windows, How Great Poems Transform the World. Her books have been finalists for the National Book Critics Circle Award and England's T.S. Eliot Prize and have been named Best Books of the Year by the Washington Post, San Francisco Chronicle, Amazon, and Financial Times and have won the California Book Award, the Poetry Center Book Award, and the Donald Hall Jane Kenyon Prize in American Poetry. She's won a number of uh, eminent fellowships Her poems have appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The Times Literary Supplement, Poetry in the New Republic, uh, and also in several editions of Best American Poetry. Uh, Jane is a Mill Valley resident. Uh, She is a gift to our Marin community. I love her poetry, and in fact, uh, my wife, Cheryl, has one of uh, her poems on our wall. And um, it is a gift and honor to introduce Jane and Eric for this conversation. So welcome. Well, I loved hearing um, some more details of of what happens at Commonweal and the extraordinary uh, set of uh, confluences of rivers of uh, assistance to all beings that that happen here. And thank you for your patience for letting some latecomers uh, make it into the room. So because it is still early in National Poetry Month, I'm going to read you one poem uh, that isn't from the new book, Um, a poem I often like to read in lucky circumstances like this uh, when we get to be together because I am so aware that there are poets working in places where They might be in complete isolation. They might have no access to publishing. They might have little access to ink or to electricity. Um, And uh, I am just confident that 
Those poets are writing some of the great world-changing poems, regardless of whether we ever get to see them or not. The poet. She is working now in a room not unlike this one, the one where I write or you read. Her table is covered with paper. The light of the lamp would be tempered by a shade where the bulb's single harshness might dissolve, but it is not. She has taken it off. Her poems, I will never know them, though they are the ones I most need. Even the alphabet she writes in, I cannot decipher. Her chair, let us imagine whether it is leather or canvas, vinyl or wicker. Let her have a chair, her shadeless lamp, the table. Let one or two she loves be in the next room. Let the door be closed, the sleeping ones healthy. Let her have time and silence, enough paper to make mistakes and go on. I think I will not read you anything from the book of essays except one paragraph, um, the opening paragraph of the preface. And I just kind of assume more about it might come up in the conversation. And if it doesn't, of course, that's what books are for. Um, and anyhow, this, this is uh, how it begins. Good art is a truing of vision in the way a saw is trued in the saw shop to cut more cleanly. It is also a changing of vision. Entering a good poem, a person feels, tastes, hears, thinks, and sees in altered ways. Why ask art into a life at all if not to be transformed and enlarged by its presence and mysterious means? Some hunger for more is in us. More range, more depth, more feeling, more associative freedom, more beauty. More perplexity and more friction of interest. More prismatic grief and unstunted delight. More longing, more darkness. More saturation and permeability in knowing our existence as also the existence of others more capacity to be astonished. Art adds to the sum of the lives we would have were it possible to live without it. And by changing selves one by one, art changes also the outer world that selves create and share. And so there's lots of things uh, talked about along the way in this book, like, um, uh, uh, how useful it is to remain uncertain and how fundamental to change it is to be surprised and how wisdom is won by paradox, um, things, things like that. So with my customary great originality, I begin with the first poem in the book. Uh, the poem is called Fado, and for anyone not familiar with this, a fado is a um, Portuguese song form uh, whose central quality is 
a word I'm probably mispronouncing, saudade, uh, which is said to be untranslatable, and yet people say it means something like longing. So these are poems of love and loss, longing and grief, the trials and turns of daily life. It first uh, is known of from the early 19th century in Lisbon as the music of sailors and dock workers and prostitutes and the outcasts and the marginalized. And it is because it is from that uh, cusp and threshold community there are influences from Africa, Brazil, the Caribbean in, in the music. Uh, it wasn't until long after I had written the poem and decided to make it the frontispiece poem in this book that um, I had occasion to look it up a little more thoroughly and discover that the word fado is also simply the Portuguese word for fate. And since the word fate runs through other poems in this book, I thought it was pretty interesting to discover that uh, something in me had known that even before I actually knew it. Fado. A man reaches close and lifts a quarter from inside a girl's ear. From her hands takes a dove she didn't know was there. Which amazes more, you may wonder, the quarter's serrated murmur against the thumb or the dove's knuckled silence, that he found them or that she never had or that in Portugal, this same half-stopped moment, it's almost dawn, and a woman in a wheelchair is singing a fado that puts every life in the room on one pan of a scale, itself on the other, and the copper bowls balance. The first section of poems in this book uh, almost all of the titles begin with the word my. Um, and in November, a lovely uh, small new press in San Francisco brought out a little letterpress chapbook with these books, some of them rearranged or with slightly different titles, called Minus, M-Y-N-E-S-S, -S, slash minus the mathematical sign. And uh, this book would have been called that if I hadn't let the chapbook be called that, I suspect, instead of the rather um, uh, chutzpah-like title, The Beauty. Um, but, you know, th these poems as a group, you know, each investigates its own subject, but as a group they investigate um, self and other and the relationship between them, you know, the dear individual fate and self uh, that the famous Chesov Miłosz poem, Minus, M-Y-N-E-S-S, -S, alludes to. He overhears women in a cafeteria talking about, you know, my family, my dog, my dinner, my breakfast, my... Um, and, and it's a wonderful, affectionate little poem for our relationship to our own, my lives. And then minus, it is all provisional, it is all perishable, self is interconnected in every molecule with everything else and vanishes from under us. And, and the poems are sort of looking at the inseparability of those two things. So, my skeleton. My skeleton, 
who once ached with your own growing larger, are now each year imperceptibly smaller, lighter, absorbed by your own concentration. When I danced, you danced. When you broke, I. And so it was lying down, walking, climbing the tiring stairs. Your jaws, my bread. Someday you, what is left of you, will be flensed of this marriage. Angular wrist bones, arthritis, cracked harp of rib cage, blunt of heel, opened bowl of the skull, twin platters of pelvis. Each of you will leave me behind, at last serene. What did I know of your days, your nights? I who held you all my life inside my hands and thought they were empty. You who held me all your life in your hands as a new mother holds her own unblanketed child, not thinking at all. Uh, this next one was written after uh, reading in the Tuesday Science Times that they had discovered the particular protein which transmits itch. Uh, this had been a great mystery until two years ago. Um, uh, and proteins, it helps to know for the poem, proteins are named after the Greek god Proteus, who changes shapes. They do their work by folding and unfolding and changing shapes. Um, but the poem isn't only about proteins, it's also about that miraculous thing, the microbiome, which I think is going to be one of the great changes we see in medicine over the next decade or two, the recognition that the health and well-being of the infinite number of independent beings who inhabit our bodies and are our bodies is, is much more important to everything than anybody realized. Um, my proteins. They have discovered, they say, the protein of itch, natureetic polypeptide B, and that it travels its own distinct pathway inside my spine, as do pain, pleasure, and heat. A body, it seems, is a highway, a cloverleaf crossing, well-built, well-traversed, some of me going north, some going south. 90% of my cells, they have discovered, are not my own person. They are other beings inside me, as 96% of my life is not my life. Yet I, they say, am they. My bacteria and yeasts, my father and mother, grandparents, lovers, my drivers talking on cell phones, my subways and bridges, my thieves, my police who chase myself night and day. My proteins, apparently also me, fold the shirts. I find in this crowded metropolis a quiet corner where I build of not-me Lego blocks a bench pigeons, a sandwich of rye bread, mustard, and cheese. It is me and is not the hunger that makes the sandwich good. It is not me then is the sandwich, a mystery neither of us can fold, unfold, or consume. 
And you know, when I was seven years old, I thought about that a lot. Here's a peanut butter and sandwich. Here's me. I take a bite. When does the one become the other? <laughs> um, a poem with uh, my perplexity about this first person personal pronoun and its relationship to the rest, and my discomfort sometimes. You know, you find yourself saying I a lot, and suddenly something in you goes, I can't say I one more time. This is ridiculous. Um, so, mosquito. I say I, and a small mosquito drinks from my tongue. But many say we, and hear I, Say you or he, and here I. What can we do with this problem? <laughs> A bowl held in both hands cannot be filled by its holder. X, says the blue whale. X, say the krill. Solve for Y, says the ocean. Then multiply by existence. The feet of an ant make their own sound on the earth. Ice is astonished by water. A person misreads delirium as delphinium and falls into a blueness sleepy as beauty when sneezing. The pronoun dozes. Now I think this is one of the great unrecognized gifts of beauty is that it pulls us from any possibility of the isolated self. Beauty is always what Robinson Jeffords called a falling in love outward. A phrase I just remembered over lunch with Michael a couple hours ago. Uh, this next poem is a poem of war grief uh, slightly disguised in the shape of an artichoke. My species. Even a small purple artichoke boiled in its own bittered and darkening waters grows tender, tender and sweet. Patience, I think, my species. Keep testing the spiny leaves, the spiny heart. If you'd like to come sit there are chairs way up front. <laughs> Please come. <laughs> Poor traffic jam. We heard all about you. We waited a really long time for you. <laughs> Quartz clock. The ideas of a physicist can be turned into useful objects. A rocket, a quartz clock, a microwave oven for cooking. The ideas of poets turn into only themselves, as the hands of the clock do, or the face of a person. It changes, but only more into the person. So here's one of the poems I was speaking about earlier when I said the theme of fate runs through this book. 
the rest of the title, the other, well, the word A won't give you any problem. Cottony will prove baffling. Um, it, the poem is called A Cottony Fate because it used to be a longer poem and there used at one point to be an Italian kitchen towel in it. But it's not there anymore. So it is an incomprehensible title. I just couldn't think of a better, so I kept it. A Cottony Fate. Long ago, someone told me, avoid or. It troubles the mind as a held out piece of meat disturbs a dog. Now I too am 60. There was no other life. And you know, the original advice was actually a piece of writing advice. Uh, to not use the word or in poems because people would get distracted and both things would be present and they wouldn't know which direction for their mind to go. And I heard this when I was 19 and I, I am always very careful now when I use the word or in a poem to be sure that I require it. Um, but it wasn't until I wrote this just a few years ago that it occurred to me it's a very good piece of life advice. Um, in a kitchen where mushrooms were washed. In a kitchen where mushrooms were washed, the mushroom scent lingers. As the sea must keep for a long time the scent of the whale. As a person who's once loved completely, a country once conquered, does not release that stunned knowledge. They must want to be found those strange-shaped rising morels, clownish puffballs. Lichens have served as a lamp wick, clean burning coconuts, olives, dried salmon, sheep fat, a carcass of petrol set blazing, light that is fume and abradement. Unburnable mushrooms are other, they darken the air they come into. There's the scent of having been traveled, been taken. And it was after this experience, which did happen, I walked into an empty kitchen and knew very well that some mushrooms had been being washed in it, wild mushrooms. I, I discovered my own happy powers as a truffle pig because the next night I was walking around in the dark and I could smell mushroom patches. And I went back the next day and there were indeed mushrooms there. Um, kind of amazing. I wake early. I wake early, make two cups of coffee, drink one, think, go back to sleep, wake again, think, drink the other. To start a day over is a card game played for no money, a ripe tomato, a swimming cat. Time here, lukewarm with milk and sugar, big and unset as a table. I wake twice. Twice the window, unbroken, transparent. Twice the cat's nose and ears above water. Twice the war, my war, is distant. Its children's children are distant.
And of course, I am hoping when you hear that, that you will understand that I mean they are also utterly immediate. Um, you know, it's, it's a very strange thing to live in a country that's been at war for so long and yet never hear so much as the whistle of a single bullet in one's own neighborhood. But every day you open the newspaper and you see the toll. Uh, this poem I read in honor of uh, our East Coast friends this winter. A chair in snow. A chair in snow should be like any other object, whited and rounded. And yet a chair in snow is always sad. More than a bed, more than a hat or house, a chair is shaped for just one thing to hold a soul its quick and few bendable hours, perhaps a king, not to hold snow, not to hold flowers. The problem. You are trying to solve a problem. You're almost certainly halfway done maybe more. You take some salt, some alum, and put it into the problem. Its color goes from yellow to royal blue. You tie a knot of royal blue into the problem as into a Peruvian quipu of colored string. You enter the problem's bodegas, its flea markets, souks. Amid the alleys of sponges and sweets, of jewelry, spices, and hair combs, you ponder which stall, which pumpkin or perfume is yours. You go inside the problem's piano. You choose three keys. One surely must open the door of the problem. If only you knew only this. Is the quandary edible or medical? A problem of reason or grief. It is looking back at you now with the quizzical eyes of a young, bright dog. Her whole body pitched for the fetch the dog wants only to please. If only she could ascertain which direction, what object, which scent of riddle, and if the problem is round or elliptical in its orbit, and if it is measured in foot-pounds, memory, or meat. Kind of a tough problem. Um, so I write a lot of very short poems. In the last three books, including this one, I uh, put them all together in a series and label them however many number it is of pebbles. This is out of respect for the trees, so I don't have 17 pages with, you know, two and three and four line poems on them, but they are all freestanding poems, and I will just read you uh, three of them. Human measures. A woman in a distant language sings with great feeling the composer's penciled in instructions to sing with great feeling. <laughs> Immigration and hunger. I misread the journalist's sentence. In 
this human drama, the police ate the supporting actors. It took me a long time to go back to that and see it was that the police are the supporting actors. Um, and this last one, because it will go by extremely quickly, it's the shortest poem in the book, I'm just going to give you a little help by saying, do not think tigers, do not think sharks, think dentist's chair. Humbling an assay. Have teeth. <laughs> A person protests to fate. A person protests to fate. The things you have caused me most to want are those that furthest elude me. Fate nods. Fate is sympathetic. To tie the shoes, button a shirt, are triumphs for only the very young, the very old. During the long middle, conjugating a rivet, mastering tango, training the cat to stay off the table, preserving a single moment longer than this one, continuing to wake whatever has happened the day before, and the penmanship's love practices inside the body. I wanted only a little. This is a poem for all of the introverts in the room. I wanted, I thought, only a little, two teaspoons of silence, one for sugar, one for stirring the wetness. No, I wanted a Cairo of silence, a Kyoto. In every hanging garden, mosses, and waters. The directions of silence, north, west, south, past, future. It comes through any window one inch open, like rain driven sideways. Grief shifts as a grazing horse does one leg to the other, but a horse sleeping sleeps with all legs locked. You're listening to a reading by poet Jane Hirschfield. So the one thing I'll say about this one is uh, the, the, this little little root that I'm talking about at the beginning of it, hap. Uh, hap, you'll hear where other words with it, but it basically, the, the uh, Indo-Sanskrit, whatever the root is, it means chance. Of amplitude, there is no scraping bottom. In certain styles of Chinese painting, three diagonal brush strokes balance a mountain. Like that, the word for happiness keeps inside it the word for chance, for haplessness also. You wanted to be ignorant, unknowing, thunderstruck, gobsmacked 
wanted to be brought to your knees by the scent of mushrooms you couldn't know whether to pick. When the violent, brilliant goshawk, excessive and unforgiving, drove you from her nesting, she battered your head with its own blunt weight of animal being. The big deaf bear in both lanes of the dark was a grandmother's fake pearl necklace suddenly real. You ate the stories of others because your own were already inside you and you were still hungry. You wanted to sleep in a house you could walk the outside of, windowed and simple, and find on it one day a door, green peeling, padlocked, you'd never guessed at. You found the house, you entered, ate there, slept. But however you rummaged and plundered the inside, that door, that blind hinge door, kept opening elsewhere. I sat in the sun. I moved my chair into sun. I sat in the sun, the way hunger is moved when called fasting. My life was the size of my life. My life was the size of my life. Its rooms were room-sized. Its soul was the size of a soul. In its background, mitochondria hummed. Above it, sun, clouds, snow, the transit of stars and planets. It rode elevators, bullet trains, various airplanes, a donkey. It wore socks, shirts, its own ears and nose. It ate, it slept, it opened and closed its hands, its windows. Others I know had lives larger. Others I know had lives shorter. The depths of lives, too, is different. There were times my life and I made jokes together. There were times we made bread. Once I grew moody and distant. I told my life, I would like some time. I would like to try seeing others. In a week, my empty suitcase and I returned. I was hungry then, and my life, my life too was hungry. We could not keep our hands off, our clothes on, our tongues from. <laughs> Two linen handkerchiefs. How can you have been dead 12 years and these still? So I'm trying to decide whether two more poems or three more poems. Three. What are you supposed to say? None, stop. <laughs> okay, three more poems. Um, 
so this one, uh, this is the only magazine I have ever heard of that didn't want to get the poem into print before the book comes out. Usually they're absolutely fierce about it. This will be the first poem ever published in Discover magazine, uh, but they are holding it until they have a science article talking about the same entanglement in physics that it is talking about. So it could be five years before it's published, but someday they will get that article and then they will publish this poem. Um, uh, so if you don't know what entanglement is, it's the thing called strange strange charm. Um, I think it's explained in here, sort of. It's the thing where they isolate an electron in, you know, uh, Milwaukee, and they isolate one in Orlando, and if they change the spin in one, the other one reverses direction, and nobody knows how it happens. Uh, there's a French phrase in the third line, ton en tanglais, that's just French for your entangled one. Entanglement. A librarian in Calcutta and an entomologist in Prague signed their moon-faced illicit emails, ton en tanglais. No one can explain it. The strange charm between border collie and sheep, leaf and wind, the two distant electrons. There is, too, the matter of a horse race. Each person shouts for his own horse louder, confident in the rising din past whip, past mud, the horse will hear his own name in his own quickened ear. Desire is different. Desire is the moment before the race is run. Has an electron never refused the invitation to change direction, sent in no knowable envelope? with no knowable ring? A story told often. After the lecture, the widow insisting the universe rests on the back of a turtle. And what, the physicist asks, does the turtle rest on? Very clever, young man, she replies. Very clever, but it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> And so a woman in Beijing buys for her love, who practices turtle geometry in Boston, a metal trinket from a night market street stall. On the back of a turtle, at rest on its shell, a turtle. Inside that green painted shell, another still smaller. This continues for many turtles until finally, too small to see or to lift up by its curious preacherly head, a single ungreen electron waits the width of a world for some weightless message sent into the din of existence for it alone. Murmur of all that is claspable, clapperable, clamberable against all that is not. You are there. I am here. I remember. So this poem comes from a stage in my life that I think many in this room probably share when all of a sudden the rare losses to death become not so rare. Um, most of my immediate nuclear family died, beloved elders died, friends died. Um, and so this is a poem speaking to that. 
Zero plus anything is a world. Four less one is three. Three less two is one. One less three is what is who remains. The first cell that learned to divide learned to subtract. Recipe, add salt to hunger. Recipe, add time to trees. Zero plus anything is a world. This one and no other, unhidden by each breath changed. Recipe, add death to life. Recipe, love without swerve what this will bring. Sister, father, mother, husband, daughter. Like a cello forgiving one note as it goes, then another. And the final poem, you will have already heard, uh, there's a fair bit of oddly simple and sometimes impossible mathematics in this poem. Uh, this has the latter. Like two negative numbers multiplied by rain. Lie down, you are horizontal. Stand up, you are not. I wanted my fate to be human. Like a perfume that does not choose the direction it travels, that cannot be straight or crooked, kept out or kept. Yes, no, or a day a life slips through them, taking off the third skin, taking off the fourth. The logic of shoes becomes at last simple, an animal question scuffing. Old shoes, old roads, the questions keep being new ones like two negative numbers multiplied by rain into oranges and olives. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. That Thank was quite you. wonderful. I actually was thinking, as I was listening to you read, uh, of a leader recital. That there's a way in which you read poems with such enunciation and um, you lead one through the poem audibly, mm. which is very different than reading the poem on the page. And it reminded me of the last time I had this association about being at a recital, as well as a poetry reading, was with Anne Sexton. The, That's quite a while ago. Quite a while ago. <laughs> it's not an association I often have. But, wow. And she swanned onto the stage in Boston in a couturier gown. <laughs> and it was, it was a recital, and um, yours was much more uh, warm and, and uh, quiet. quiet. But uh, it, it, there's a way in which the oral tradition yes. uh, is inhabited by you, and that you, the idea of poems as something either spoken or sung the history of poetry, of course, being uh, sung 
and the relationship between poetry and memory, which I hope we'll get to uh, in the talk. Um, we've just had the opportunity to hear your poems. Um, Jane, I think, is one of the few people, if not the first person, that has two books appearing at the same time from Knopf. Yes, Knopf broke a rule to let me have my twins. Yes. It's my fourth set of twins, but I had the first three with other publishers. <laughs> Quite impressive. <laughs> I told them I thought they would find it was a good idea if they yes. tried it. <laughs> and I think it is a very good idea. And I think what I'm going to try to do is to use the uh, other half of you. You've given your poetry. I thought we'd talk a little bit more about um, you're, you as a prose writer, as a, as a somebody, uh, as a thinker, mm -hmm. an essayist. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what I have, uh, what I'd like to deal with are some of the ideas that you raise in your essays. The book is called Ten Windows, which, uh, first of all, is there a correlation between Nine Gates, which was the previous book of essays? Yes, it's the about? correlation of a desperate lack of imagination. For So Nine Gates had nine chapters in it, and Ten Windows has ten chapters in it. And I'm very fond, if you look at my poetry, you know, throughout the history of the poetry books and throughout the history of the prose books, you will find a lot of gates and windows, uh, thresholds. Uh, architectural metaphors seem to me archetypally... Um, uh, just saturated with possibility and meaning, and particularly gates, windows, doors, things one passes through. Which applies also for poems. Very much so. Yeah. Um, so before we go into that, I actually wanted to talk a little bit, because you're on book tour now, and you lead a life, you know, airports, hotel rooms, terrible food, you know, that kind of a, uh, 21st century literary life. Uh, and I, I wanted to bring it in with a, a quote that you wrote about um, the life of the poet is not the source of the poem, but its servant. So the life of the poet in relation to this kind of mm. uh, scheduling, how right. do you integrate, how do you feel uh, the life of the poet uh, can maximize the experience uh, of being on the road? So that, that's a wonderful and, and subtle question for me to answer in particular, because unlike some other poets, um, Robert Pinsky wrote four books while he was flying around. Um, Galway Cannell could write on airplanes. I cannot. To write, I need to be quiet, undistracted, concentrated, and sort of protected from things like worrying if I'm going to make my flight if I am not packed two hours from when I'm sitting down trying to write a poem in the morning, it is not going to happen for me. Um, so I am, I know I'm not quite addressing the question yet, but I am your great permission. Any of you who like to make work in the arts, write poems, but who don't work every day, I am the, the exception. It sometimes feels as if every poet in America is writing a poem a day except for me. Um, but the, the more, um, the more well-aimed answer to your question is to say that oddly, even though traveling and making new poems are different universes for me, I think that having had the experience for a long time now 
of being a person who was not for some reason permitted by fate to stay quietly in a room and not give my poems to other people, not go different places. I feel as if a request was made of me to respond appropriately to what was asked. And somehow, in some ways, I mean, sometimes things I've seen on these poetry travels will come into a poem years later. So I was invited, I was the only Western poet at the second Chinese poetry festival. Not their international poetry festival, but their Chinese poetry festival. And so I was brought to China and, you know, on, on the little bus where uh, we were all uh, being taken to these events with 10,000 people at them um, until I finally did something in public. Nobody knew why I was there and I couldn't talk to anybody. And then once I did something, it turned out a few of them spoke a little English and we began to be friends. But then you, you see things, you're taken to see things. You don't just go to a stage and go back to your room. And the Forest of Stones in Xi'an, which is uh, the, the Library of Alexandria of China, where the great classics of China are calligraphed onto these standing stones, um, collected from all over China and brought to this one location in the ancient capital. Some of them have been whacked during the Cultural Revolution. Um, you know, this is incredibly moving to me. And that trip was where, you know, the little, the, the night market uh, street stall was from that trip. The little turtle within turtles I have on a ledge in my house. So there's that part of it. There's that you never know what image you will need to say something. And so my life has been immeasurably broadened by the gift of being asked to go places and pretend I'm an extrovert briefly. <laughs> Um, but also in another way, I have begun to feel that in ways I can't control or explain, I serve not only what goes into my own poetry, but I serve as a pollinating bee. You know, I was taken to Syria in 2007. I spoke with Syrian students during a time when the war in Iraq was raging 750,000 Iraqis in exile were taken in by Syria, which was not a wealthy country at all. Now those same students are either, you know, dead or in chaos or in exile themselves. Somehow the fact that I can simply go from one place to another and tell some of the stories feels like another work and do work that poets can do because our interests are different. Our human curiosities, I can't solve the political problems of that part of the world. I can't begin to solve it. But I could say to those students something about how it was not my choice that my country was bombing their next door neighbor and they were afraid we'd be bombing them next and so it goes and so it goes. So you know, you just, you do what your life asks you to do. I promise I'll answer some other ones more briefly. <laughs> Otherwise we won't get through well, anything on I mean, your it brings sheets. up so many things, yeah. to, uh, including Auden's line about um, poetry can make nothing happen. Yes. Um, I think that's, 
uh, well, it's also, that line has often been taken out of context and, uh, and used against him in a way, in a way that it actually reflects his, uh, his wide-ranging idea about politics and poetry, but uh, very much the sense that you cannot solve those problems, but that does not mean that you're not a successful poet or you can't record that. But as you were talking about China, I was, I was thinking about another role that you play besides poet and essayist is translator. Mm. And I gave Jane a little bit of notice, but it's not entirely fair that I'm going to give her some poems to read that she hasn't actually prepared for, but they do come all out of high windows. So they're all poems that you're familiar with. Okay, you, you didn't windows, give me any windows. poems to read. I never got any I'm, poems. No, about to oh, give you oh, okay. So that you're not prepared for <laughs> oh, good. Okay. it in that sense. But, good. <laughs> and so as, as a, um, a translator, I thought we would start, and, and these uh, are poems that all appear in ten in her essays. Ten windows, ten windows. yes. High, high windows is Larkin's, Larkin's poem, poem, right? Yes, I always and was thinking about that as you were talking about. So this is uh, let's we're going to go chronologically uh, from the past to the present. Uh, this is a poem by Horace, uh, translated by Burton Raffel. Leucon, no one's allowed to know his fate, not you, not me. Don't ask, don't hunt for answers in tea leaves or palms. Be patient with whatever comes. This could be our last winter. It could be many more pounding the Tuscan Sea on these rocks. Do what you must. Be wise. Cut your vines and forget about hope. Time goes running even as we talk. Take the present. The future's no one's affair. Do you want me to say something about it? No, no, uh, no. <laughs> no. I mean, not yet. But I was, the point is that it's a, I find a very beautiful, elegant yes. translation. Uh, but when I went back to the Latin, which I am not a Latinist by a long shot, but if you know language well enough, you can see pick out words. And I found that there were so many more interesting words in the poem. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to read another translation, okay, um, which is um, cobbled which is mine, made from many other blackness. Right. So, same poem. Uh, you shouldn't ask, and it's wrong to know what end the gods will have given you or to you, O Lucan. And don't try making any of those Babylonian calculations. How much better it is to endure whatever will be, whether or not Jupiter has allotted more winters to us like the one now pounding the cliffs along the Tyrrhenian Sea. Be wise and prune the vines of long-range hopes down to those of the briefest minutes. While we are speaking, life is fleeing away. Seize the day. Trust the future as little as possible. So we are all probably familiar with the phrase carpe diem, which Raphael choose, make, made a decision, seize the day, not to put that in his translation. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought we might talk a little bit about how, mm -hmm. both as a poet and an essayist and a, a translator, mm -hmm. you reconcile, I found that Babylon, Jupiter, Tyrrhenian Sea, as opposed to Tuscan Sea, mm -hmm. um, that there are choices that the translator makes um, that are not right or wrong. Uh, and I will, because I'm a translator and you're a translator, I will say a translator's job is essentially a losing proposition. 
from the beginning. So <laughs> that goes without without saying. So, 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 you know, following along probably much more than you could hear it. I could see the equivalence to all of those phrases. And while I knew Latin when I graduated from high school, I did not go back to the Latin to, to look at this when I, when I put this in the book. It's in the book for other reasons. It's, it's to illustrate a, a point about uh, attitude towards life. And yet there are so many choices. I mean, I love that business about, you know, uh, what's the Babylonian phrase? Don't try making any of those Babylonian calculations. I mean, that's just, it's so colloquial and specific. And, and is, Babylon, is Babylonia in the Latin? Yes. Sure. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I loved what I heard there. Um, and I can't speak for Burton Raffel because I, you know, I just found this in a book and used it. Um, but yeah, there are so many choices, and I am only myself a co-translator. Everything else I've done is what we call versions, but the Japanese translations I have co-translated with a Japanese-speaking woman who has been my partner both for the poems in the Ink Dark Moon and for the uh, chapter about Basho in, in Ten Windows. And... It is a very different set of problems than what we're hearing here, translating from the Japanese, because their vocabulary is very, very simple. Classical Japanese vocabulary had about 800 words. And Japanese and English are very different languages, as is Latin, but less distinct. In, in the Japanese, um, you don't necessarily have a grammatical uh, pronoun given you. So a poem isn't I this or that, you this or that, he this or that. It's just this or that. In English, we have to put it into a grammatical point of view. And so in translating, it was not a liberty to do this. It was a necessity. And I found it fascinating and useful in developing my own playfulness and experimentation as a poet to be forced to make choices by basically trying it in these different voices and just feeling which is the more intimate, mm. which has the most heat, which, is, which moves me the most. Um, and you played that off of your Japanese co-translator? or All of the versions, we, I would, she would give me a word for word. I knew how the grammar worked. I knew, I knew how... I sort of hate to say this, but I knew, I, I knew the Buddhist background more than she did because I had been practicing Buddhism a long time and, and she never had. Mm -hmm. um, so she would give me word for word. I would write down the Japanese in our alphabet, go home with it, study it, come back with something. And she would either tell me if I had gone totally wrong or if I had seen something in the poem that she hadn't, which she now thought was absolutely true. She was a great collaborator mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. um, but that was just fascinating. And, of course, you got to cherry pick. And yes. you took the best from probably five or six different versions yes. there, yes. didn't you? And um, yeah. put them together yeah. in a, in a, looking for just what you described. Yeah. I can't heat. do that in my books because um, my publisher right. would get very upset with me. <laughs> That's why we're here. Right. <laughs> that freedom. Um, so um, taking up your mention of, uh, of Buddhism that you know, um, I thought that... Uh, 
in your essay on Basho, you write that uh, Zen is less the study of doctrine than a set of tools for discovering what can be known when the world is looked at with open eyes. And I think um, uh, I find that a, a very uh, revealing and, and helpful uh, sentence. And I thought maybe um, the open eyes, this represents to me essentially one of your gifts is your breadth of, mm -hmm. of influence and of, of uh, intake and of interest that you in your essays uh, spread across these, these, uh, these beautifully crafted um, insights. You're listening to a conversation with poet Jane Hirschfield and Eric Karpolis. And uh, one of the other, uh, so we got, we've gone from Zen, and then the next poem I'd like you to, uh, to read is uh, a Mughal master named Ghalib, who is, was an Urdu poet uh, who was born at the very end of the 18th century and lived in, in India in the, time, uh, the terrible times of uh, British colonialism. He was born in Agra, where the uh, Taj Mahal was built, and uh, he had an exquisite sensibility. Uh, when I was... 16, I lived in India for a year. And uh, on Sundays, I used to go to the Ghalib Academy mm. where uh, I didn't speak Urdu, but it was like going to a Raga concert. It was just, you know, it, and the relationship between music and language that you didn't understand became so much more uh, um, uh, succinct. And so this, I, I, all the, the poems that I'm asking Jane to read do, as I said, come from uh, 10 Windows, but also they represent a, a, a turn of uh, idea in the book. And so this one is called Joy is Entering the River. For the raindrop, joy is in entering the river. Unbearable pain becomes its own cure. Travel far enough into sorrow, tears turn to sighing. In this way, we learn how water can die into air. When, after heavy rain, the storm clouds disperse, is it not that they've wept themselves clear to the end? If you want to know the miracle, how wind can polish a mirror, look, the shining glass grows green in spring. It's the roses unfolding, Halib, that creates the desire to see. In every color and circumstance, may the eyes be open for what comes. So this idea of open eyes yeah. in both Zen and in uh, Mughal, Muslim. Uh, yeah. And permeability. You know, a lot of, one of the through themes in Ten Windows is the relationship of making poems and feeling the suffering of a human life. And one of the things that I have come to understand long after it was saving my life from childhood until today is that if you can write about unbearable pain, you can find that unbearable pain becomes its own cure. And it is the can write which is actually the moment of freedom. 
Because if you are on the floor weeping, if you are in the abyss of totally disabling depression, you cannot, you are not writing. The moment the possibility enters your being to try to turn to language, you have already let yourself out of the prison of being undone entirely. You're still undone, but you have given yourself back some sense that there is a larger self who can find something to respond. It is the very responsiveness which is the beginning of that which Khalib is calling cure. And so the attempt itself, even if the poem is bad, even if the poem is a failure, the attempt is a liberation and a transformation and a triumph of hope. Because if you have no hope, the pencil will stay on the table. So it is the first crack in the door of a possible transformation of being. That, like a little seed with its scored, hard carapace that everything can emerge from. Well, that is a, a beautiful segue. And this is indicative of Jane's mind and spirit in the book, where I can jump from Horace to Ghalib to um, what you've just spoken about in terms of suffering segues, I think, beautifully to Miwosh. Yes. To Chesov Miwosh, who is quite often quoted uh, in, the, in the series of essays. Uh, and Jane had the distinction of having the great Polish Nobel laureate write an introduction to a selection of her poems being translated into Polish in which he said something to the effect that, I'm not a Buddhist, but <laughs> uh, these poems move me, and I understand them. Tell us a little bit about Miłosz and how you came to, to know him and, mm -hmm. and for this to happen. So Miłosz, as most of you know, and, and if you've never heard his name pronounced, it looks like Miloš. And when we all first began to hear about him, nobody knew how to say it at all. And, and me and my friends called him um, coleslaw meatloaf. Um, and, and then when, you know, later on, there was a great celebration of him and his work, the only one that ever happened in America at Claremont College. And for three days, we all talked about him. And he sat there in his, you know, high 80s, with, with a hearing aid in, in his ear, absolutely alert, never dozing off for one second for three days of, of you know, erect Polish attention. Um, and then uh, Lech Walesa got onto the podium and looked at us all and said, none of you have pronounced his name correctly. <laughs> Or <laughs> Yeah, um, we do the best we can. I tried to imitate what his American wife said when she referred to him. Um, 
But he, he taught in America for 40 years in exile. At the very end of his life, he returned to, to Poland after the Velvet Revolutions. The government said, please come home, we'll give you an apartment. Um, and he was happy to do that, to, to end his life speaking his home language. Um, but as it turns out, I was the last and youngest American friend he made. And I met him... There was a period of time when, you know, his, his, most of his work was translated by, by Robert Hass. And there was a period of time when Bob Hass and Brenda Hillman and a couple of other friends were having a big Labor Day picnic on Angel Island every year. And I got invited to that with my then honey. And uh, Brenda called me up the night before and said, nobody ever talks to Cheslev and Carol. You know, everybody, nobody, they're all, everybody's too shy of them. Please talk to Cheslev and Carol. And I thought, well, you know, I'm terrified. I think, you know, this, this is as close to Zeus as I'm ever going to come, but I'll talk to him, you know, it's like, what a chance. And we ended up that day taking a walk around Angel Island with them. And it was my honey, whose father was Polish, who spent all the time talking to Czesław, and I talked to Carol, and I still thought it was really kind of great, and I thought that would be the end of it. Then, uh, in that must have been the summer of 87, in February 88, my second book came out, a book from Wesleyan University Press. And... Sometime after that, I got a phone call. This was the beginning of junk phone calls. Um, I got a phone call, you know, uh, is this Jane Hirschfield? And I almost went into my, I don't take this kind of call, but the voice had an accent. And so I said, with great suspicion in my voice, yes, yes. And then the voice said, Jane Hirschfield, the poet? Nobody had ever called me that before. <laughs> Yes. And then the voice said, this is Joseph Miłosz. And if I had not been in bed, I would have fallen out of bed. Um, I, and, and he had read the book, and he liked it, and was inviting us to dinner. Um, and, and this became a friendship, which I would never have initiated. But it turned out he was kind of lonely in America. And, and I was thrilled to get to, you know, I would invite him to dinner. My great embarrassment is I once, he loved wild mushrooms and I made a chanterelle dinner and didn't wash them well enough and it was kind of gritty. And it's like, oh no, I've served. And the first dinner I was so nervous that it went by, the food courses went by kind of fast and it was only after they left at the end of the night I looked in the refrigerator and realized I'd forgotten to serve the salad course. Um, but it was, it was a great privilege. He had a great sense of of humor. He had, um, he would ask me to explain New Yorker cartoons to him because he was a little lacking in some of the cultural references. As are many um, of us. He put, he put his arm around me in Poland. It was because of him that I was invited to Polish festivals and became a poet known, known in Poland and, and had the selected poems brought out there. Um, but his relationship to Buddhism was extremely interesting because for Czesław the central question was suffering. And he was a practicing Catholic, and that was his worldview of, of the question of suffering. But as a person who, he understood the compassion side of Buddhism 
better than any other non-Buddhist practitioner I have ever met. His understanding was more accurate and clearer and precise and fully felt than any other person I know who knew Buddhism only from book reading. His understanding of the emptiness and the provisionality of self, that was actually horrifying to him because he was a Catholic, because he actually believed that salvation is in the soul. And it was very interesting to talk with him about this because he both, there were, there were certain things that I knew would be completely unacceptable to him and there were other things. He loved Buddhism because the precipitating question of Buddhism was the question of human suffering. And that was his own great openness yes. in turn, was anybody who cared about suffering, he wanted to know. Yes. Which is um, almost endemic in Polish poetry. Yes. And in Polish history. And in Polish history and in the Polish spirit. And uh, you do um, refer to a large range of Polish poets yes. scattered throughout. Actually, reading the book of essays is kind of like uh, realizing how much you have yet to read. Uh, it, 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 you will always have and you will never not have, but there are always poets that, that one is welcome for the opportunity to, to find out more about. Uh, and many of these are Polish. One of them is a, is a woman who's known as Anna Svir, yes. um, who uh, is one of, like me, well, Polish poets of the 20th century are an astonishingly rich tapestry of voices and experiences. And um, I have a, a quote that you, uh, Anna Svir, uh, saying that the goal of words and poetry is to grow up to the contents. Yet the goal cannot ever be attained, for only a small part of the psychic energy which dwells in a poet incarnates itself in words. In fact, every poem has the right to ask for a new poetics. That's not in my book. I've never heard that before. Seriously? Yeah. Is it not in the book? No. You, <laughs> That's you very refer interesting. to her. Maybe I just found it. Yes, that I refer to Anisphere quite a bit, but I. I Okay. That's news, thanks. Yeah. But, but it's, it's also very Buddhist. I mean, there's uh -huh. a way in which the crossover between this Polish idea of suffering and the Buddhist idea, yeah. they're very close. I'm sorry. I thought I would... <laughs> See, you're some... better read than you think. <laughs> um, so, um, I think what... I, let, let's move on to... Sorry, one. I threw you for a loop. Uh, yeah. Uh, this is a poem that uh, is very reminiscent of one of your pebble poems. It's a poem by D.H. Lawrence. Ah, yes. Uh, this is one, I know there's some people in the room who have worked in poets in the schools. Anybody who's taught poets in the schools has used this poem, I think. Uh, the White Horse. The youth walks up to the white horse to put its halter on, and the horse looks at him in silence. They are so silent they are in another world. Well, I am very interested in, besides the fact that this poem is somehow magical and mysterious and unparsable, um, one of my loves in poetry is how much can be done by how little. I am especially partial to very short 
poems. And Lawrence was as well. He wrote, he called them pansies after the flower, which was his verbal joke on the French pensée, thoughts, you know, little aphorisms. And Lawrence had a marvelous way of describing them where he would say, you know, moving and useful if they work and if they're not, move along. Um, and this little poem has become an icon in English language poetry. You know, most people know this poem, and yet almost nothing happens in it. And that is, you know, it's just an image, a description. Boy walks up to a horse, halters it, horse looks back, and then this last line, which would seem to be nothing, seem to be extraneous, they are so silent, they are in another world, and yet it takes the whole poem and transforms it just by inviting us to see in a different way. It is an invitation that we walk into and can almost not walk into. And in my mind, I often see the famous, uh, the big early Picasso blue period mm. painting of a boy and a horse. And this poem, for, that's a very big painting. Yes. And this poem in my mind is as big as that painting. Everything is actually large and intimate at the same time. Lovely. And that we're not told what the world is is very important. Because there are certain things when you read a poem, poems are saying, as Donald Hall so wonderfully said, you know, the unsayable said. <coughs> poems are carrying things through their words that words can't carry. And those things live in us. We bring them to the poem. We, we feel them in our response. We feel them in the part of us which doesn't say anything back but feels something back. And those transformative, non-cognitive, non-intellectual, non-rational knowledges are as precise and accurate and necessary as calculus to a full human life. The, uh, the last phrase is also terrifically prosaic. Yes. It's not poetry in what, the way that we think of poetry, and yet embodied in so little, it is elevated into a state of poetry. Mm -hmm. um, and it also, its brevity, he uses the reference to pensée, to something French, which he was quite familiar with, because he probably would feel it too presumptuous to talk about Japanese brevity and haiku. It has that kind of uh, cross-breeding. Your reference to the Picasso boy leading a horse uh, leads me to ask you to talk a little bit about there are references to Dürer, Bosch, and one soft spot for me is Bonnard. Mm. You, uh, you, write, you use Bonnard in your poems. Uh, there's a massive show that's just opened in Paris, uh, a retrospective that will be next year here in San Francisco uh, of Bonnell. So could you talk a little bit about what he means to you or, or how you use a painter that you love mm. in a poem in a way that somehow I've always wondered, does a, paint, does a poet see a painting and decide that this is something he or she wants to include in a poem 
Or is there a way when you're, you're struggling to find something, it reminds you of a poem? Yes. I'm sure it's not one or the other, or yes. there's a formula. But would you speak a yeah. bit about it? So I think there are tendencies, and, and other poets do what, what is technically known as ekphrastic poetry, in that they go to a work of art, and they write in response to it, and it is very clearly that first process you described. The Shield of Achilles, for instance. Oh, yes, all. yes, brilliant. Uh, and that one, it's interesting because, in fact, the work of art does not exist. The poets who have written, as Auden and others have, poems about the Shield of Achilles, they are actually writing about a written description in Homer, which is, so it's, it's kind of the turtles all the way down in that, in that there is no work of art, yeah, and there, yet. There are two kinds of ekphrasis. One yes. is, is about a work that exists, and one is about a work that doesn't exist. Okay. Um, but then there's me, and I, <laughs> I as, a, as, a, as a poet, I'm, it's almost impossible, you know, every once in a while someone will, will proposition me with some kind of a commission, and I always say, can't, can't. My, my muse is extremely recalcitrant and does not like being given specific tasks. I'm quite stupid if I am asked to do a direct task. It takes a leap into freedom, which I seem to be unable to combine. You know, the obedient eight-year-old gets in the way of, of the necessary freedoms of response that would, would, would allow you to be um, the imaginative person who you want to be in any, in any response. And by imaginative, of course, I don't mean make things up. I mean allow the unexpected to present itself True to, to you. Um, so for me, it's very much the second that I start writing and then a work of art comes in and makes possible saying something I couldn't say without reference to it. I mean, this is a shaggy dog story, but one of my poems with Bonnard in it, um, History as the Painter Bonnard, much earlier book, not, not in the beauty, um, the Velvet Revolutions were happening in Eastern Europe, 1989. And I read about them in the newspaper, and my first reaction was, this is amazing. You know, huge political change without bloodshed. How great is that? And then I thought, that is the most superficial and inadequate response to what is going on, for one thing, in a place in the world in which an immense amount of the historical suffering of the 20th century took place. And just being happy is not a good way to think about this. And I tried to think about it with more depth, and I simply hit a wall. I, I knew I wanted to think other thoughts, and I couldn't find them. And then after a few days of this, I thought, poetry? That's how you think other thoughts? So I thought, what a good idea. And then I thought, but what? And then I thought, and then I was completely stuck for like a week. I knew there was a poem I want, but what? And, I, and then I thought of revision. And the idea of revision, what happens to the thing that was there before when something is changed? Where does it go? What, what was its life? Sort of a metaphysical question about when there are large changes, what happens to what was there before? And then once I came to revision, I knew I had something. And then I came to Bernard, because Bernard was a great reviser of his own paintings. Those of you who saw the movie Mr. Turner, 
What you saw him doing, Bonnard was famous for. Even after his paintings were in museums, he would go in and change them. And so once I had that idea, the title of the poem is History as the Painter Bonnard, and then I could begin to write and think and feel and discover what did I think about this. And the end of the poem, it ends with an image of a child who's been hit, putting his hand back into the hand of the mother who hit him, because that's the parent he has. And somehow, even though this does not seem like a direct response to the Velvet Revolutions in Eastern Europe, which are talked about in the course of the poem, that was enough to make me feel like now I had thought my way through what happens with the past, what happens with the present. And of course, a few years later, it turned out that my troubled mind was completely correct because you had uh, the incredible slaughter of the former Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. um, and also you, the way that you break the metaphor at the end of the poem of the fist and the velvet glove, that mm -hmm. actually when you're a child, yes. you have no glove. You have to take what's given to you power-wise. It's your authority. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, so I think uh, I'll give you one last poem. Um, this is by uh, another Polish poet, amazing woman uh, named Julia Hartwig, yeah. who I had the great privilege of having lunch with once oh, last good. year. She's now, I think, 92 or 93. Um, she lives in an incredible an apartment in Warsaw uh, and is just so full of life. It just makes somebody who's only 60 feel <laughs> that I have a lot to, ahead of me yet. So... Can I just say before I read this that I got to see in one of these events I was brought, actually it was the, it was the Miwo's centennial event, so he, he had died by then, but the last public reading that Wisława Zimborska gave in her life was a group reading in a Gothic cathedral in Krakow, which is how we did these things in these festivals. And um, that one... Zimborska and Julia Hartwig were both on stage and they had put couches up for sitting because it was a five-person reading. And the two of them, before this reading began, were sitting on the couch talking and they looked like two teenage girls. It was so fantastic. Just two girls giggling on the couch. Feeling the way. The most beautiful is what is still unfinished. A sky filled with stars uncharted by astronomers, a sketch by Leonardo, a song broken off by emotion, a pencil, a brush suspended in the air. Will you read that again? Feeling the way. The most beautiful is what is still unfinished a sky filled with stars uncharted by astronomers, a sketch by Leonardo, a song broken off by emotion, a pencil, a brush, suspended in the air. So this could go on forever, so it will remain unfinished. 
this talk. If you have questions, would you hand them to Kira? We'll come around with a basket. And if you don't have questions, write them really fast. <laughs> this is great. He has to decipher the handwriting. <laughs> Jane, what advice would you give a middle-aged poetess who wants to heal the world? Wants to heal the world. What advice would I give a middle-aged poetess who wants to heal the world? Um, the same advice that Voltaire gives at the end of Candide. Start in your own garden. Um, you know that it's, it is enough to heal one millimeter and allow that to spread forward. If you were to pick one favorite line from your poetry, what would it be? Oh. These are not my questions. <laughs> I'm really bad at um, bests and favorites and five most, and I, I just, I absolutely get, get floored by that. I'll tell you, not my favorite, not my one, but um, one that comes up a lot that maybe connects to that first question, um, if I can remember it, because it's from an earlier book and I really should remember it. Um, uh, this, is, this is a poem that I give to people from time to time. Uh, it's the last, it's the end of it. Uh, the world asks of us only the strength we have, and we give it. Then it asks more, and we give it. So that's a line of sympathy <laughs> for all of us who are asked to give more than we think we can, and yet somehow we take the next breath. Well, thank you for giving us, Jane. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to a conversation with poet Jane Hirschfield and Eric Karpolis. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. <laughs>